This episode of In Good Company is brought to you by Asenia, a CBD oil spray that helps reduce stress, improve focus, and ensure you're feeling relaxed and calm as you go about your day-to-day business. It comes in this little spray bottle, so you can carry it around with you if you want, and you just spray it under your tongue every eight hours or so, and voila, you're on your way to being a calmer, more relaxed, more focused version of yourself. Made using hemp plants grown in the lush hills of Colombia, with sustainable cultivation methods that avoid the use of pesticides, herbicides, chemical fertilisers and all that other gunk. Asenia is one of the only CBD products in the UK that offers complete traceability with every bottle made. If you're looking for something to help you balance all the demands of modern life and help you switch off and get a good night's sleep after a busy day, then you need this spray. To try it out for yourself, head to www.asenyacbd.com That's www.esenia.cbd.com or click the link in our show notes. One more time, that's esenia.cbd.com. In Good Company listeners can also enjoy 30% off their first purchase by entering the code WOMENWHO at checkout. Thank you very much to Asenia. Hello and welcome to In Good Company, a podcast for working women hosted by me, Atavia Ragba. We've reached the final episode of this season, so of course I wanted to go out with a bang, and I'm delighted to introduce our guest for this episode in the form of Elaine Welteroth. You probably already know her as the former editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue, who oversaw the magazine's pivot to a more political, more socially conscious editorial stance that pushed it into the spotlight like never before and earned Teen Vogue an army of new readers and admirers. Not only was Elaine the youngest person ever to be appointed editor-in-chief of a Condé Nast title, but she was also only the second ever African-American person to hold that position. Her memoir, More Than Enough, debuted on the New York Times bestseller list when it was published back in June and is a really uplifting account of how she's charted a pretty unprecedented course through the media industry while still staying very true to herself and her values as you'll hear in just a second. We managed to cover so much on this episode from existential careers crises and navigating toxic working environments to how to approach your career role models for advice and the salary negotiation lessons she had to learn the hard way. I found reading Elaine's memoir and then interviewing her shortly afterwards so galvanising. For about a week or so after this conversation, I went around telling all my friends that I'd been elaine which basically means that I'd regained the fire and ambition for my work that's really easy to lose sight of in the day-to-day grind of emails and admin. I hope listening to this conversation has the same effect on you. My biggest takeaway from your book and the thing that kind of radiated kind of off the pages, just kind of reading about your journey right from the start when you were a kid and through school and college was just how you made stuff happen for yourself and how you're mm. clearly a very ambitious person. Like I, My big takeaway was like no one handed anything to you. Like you literally went out there and like made opportunities mm. or took opportunities, which I found really inspiring. And I was wondering where you get that sense of ambition from. It's such an interesting question because I don't know the answer. I don't know where ambition comes from. I don't I don't know. I actually think maybe we're born with that drive and I think then you either like nature or nurture, I don't know, enhances it. In my case, I think that you know, I never 
wanted for anything when I was young, but I certainly wasn't, you know, I don't, I don't come from money. I do not come from generational wealth. I'm certainly a first generation, quote unquote, success story and a, you know, first generation college graduate. So I think that my probably natural born ambition coupled with not having access, immediate, immediate access to this like sort of upper echelons of society or a certain worldly things or even like a pathway to success, quote unquote, that hunger kind of drove me. I think the, the coupling of those two things, but I don't, I think that's a larger sort of existential question. I don't know where ambition comes from. And I have that conversation with people a lot of the time, a lot, like successful people. I always ask them, like, do you think you were born mm-hmm. ambitious or was it, um, did you get ignited by a passion that put you on the path that you're on. And, and so I think, I don't know, I'm curious, what, what do you think? Do you, do you think you were born with your ambition or do you think that you I think, got along the way? I mean, I think my ambition, my work ethic comes massively from my parents. I'm first-gen immigrant. My, you know, I was born in Nigeria and moved to London when I was young. And like you, I definitely did not come from money. I grew mm-hmm. up on like a council estate. And... I think, I mean, for me, I'm always quite honest about the fact that a huge part of my motivation is fear. Yeah. And I was, and knowing that I don't have a financial safety net, right. but also there is an element of competition, like wanting to be the, the best. best or wanting to be really good yeah. at what I do. So it's a combination of factors. Yes. But I was curious. What do you think motivates you now, like in your day to day? Like, what are you striving for? Because you've already hit so many pinnacles. So what keeps you going? It's so interesting that you are now only the second person who's ever talked about or asked me about this this concept because my book is called More Than Enough and it's really about confidence and overcoming fear that holds you back and, and expanding into your best self and all that kind of stuff. But then like, so then in the absence of insecurity and fear, what, what does drive you, you know, Mm -hmm. like, and I'm like, Ooh, I want to meditate on that. I want to like, really (laughs) like think about that more. And I, and my thoughts might evolve as I, over time on that. But, um, but I think that like you for much of my twenties and even my teen years, fear and insecurity was definitely a motivator. Um, anxiety, it's a motivator. When you wake up in the morning, you're like, I have to make it happen because no one's going to make it happen for me. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it is one hell of a motivator, you know, and, and I, I, but, but the idea that I don't want to be a failure and that I want to be excellent, I think that is something that you're born with and something that, um, no one can take away from you unless you let them. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think over time throughout my twenties, I think I've wrestled with this, trying to find some semblance of balance between hustle and flow. And like in my book, I I write that I think you cannot sustain one without the other. Like there is hustle, there is flow, but you cannot sustain one without the other. And I think in my now, now crossing the threshold of thirties, I, which I think is a huge difference for me in mindset. I realized that I want to operate in flow so while I am very ambitious still, I ha- now have the privilege of being able to choose how I invest my time and energy and who I want to spend my time with and professionally. Like I only want to partner with people that make me feel like my investment of energy is going to 
I'm going to have a return on that investment that's going to be a positive one. And um, I can say no to things now. Like there's just a certain amount of, you don't have that luxury when you're in your 20s. You know, yeah. you're just trying to establish yourself and you're saying yes to everything and you're hustling super hard just to establish yourself. But I think in your now in, in my 30s, I can be a little bit more thoughtful and strategic with what I give my time to and um, what motivates me. So to answer your question at this point, is impact. It's like I am driven by the idea of of having a positive impact. So and it's also about like the quality of my output versus the quantity. And I think in your 20s you're just like you're just trying to do so much to just get ahead to yeah. the, to make make a name for yourself. Yeah. And now it's like no, I I've I've accomplished a certain amount that has that has left a certain impact and that people have a certain sense of who I am in my work. Now where do I want to take it and how can I how can I drive impact and and change things for the better for other people? So it's bigger. It's like wrestling with like bigger questions. Mm. Um, and I have I feel like I have the luxury of taking my time a little bit more because I don't have that insecurity at my back necessarily. That's like breathing down my neck every mm. single day. Mm. And that is a hard one. I mean, that is I remember waking up every single day and just feeling like anxious. What were you anxious about? I don't know. Just wanting to be great and wanting to be successful. Was it successful. measuring yourself? Was, no. was it comparing yourself to other people? I really never struggled. Thank God that I never struggled so much with like comparing myself to other people. I think I've always been in a race with myself. Okay. And, um, and that can be the toughest thing sometimes. Totally. That is, I think, for ambitious women, especially mm. women of color, I think we are our harshest critics mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. So just going back a little bit to the start of your career, it seemed to me from reading your memoir that you have always known what it is you wanted to do. That's how I interpreted it. You were always interested in beauty and magazines and journalism. Right from an early age, you talked about making these collages and reading these magazines. And I felt a little bit jealous of that in some ways. Mm -hmm. And I think... I almost didn't relate to that because it took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do with my career. I had this big kind of career crisis in my mid-20s where I was just, I started out working in advertising um, and did not like it. And then I just, I just kind of threw it all away and started again and moved into journalism and writing. Is it fair to say that you've always known no. what you wanted to do? Okay, because no. I can see you shaking your head. No, we have so much more in common than no, 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 no. One thing that needs context is writing a story about your life is done from a place of reflection. It is not that is it is not true that I knew from the beginning, looking ahead, what what I wanted and where exactly I was going. It it's only in the looking back that you see the breadcrumbs that always indicated that you were meant to be on the path you are now on, right? And that is that's my point to people. It's like when you feel lost, and inevitably we all will grapple with that feeling of not knowing exactly what we want or where we're meant to go, I think the best thing that we can do is look back mm -hmm. because there are clues from our childhood, from how we played before there was ever the risk of failure, before there was a fear of failure, before there were bills to pay, before there were expectations placed on you. You naturally gravitated to certain things in terms of how you spent your time. And, and, I have found in looking back that there were there were the answers were always there. It's like I was a boss at 
nine years old. You know what I mean? I was running my own beauty salon in my backyard with my best friend. I had a little magazine that I used saran wrap to give, you know, the glossy feel pages to, you know, I was enterprising. I was like scrappy then, you know, I was, I was unapologetic then knocking on friends door girls I wanted to be friends with knocking on their doors asking them for cardboard because I was building a salon and I was going to invite them to <laughs> come play in my salon and make them my customers you know like 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 who was that girl she is who I am I just need to I just need to do the work to reclaim all the pieces of me that I and all the piece the, the ways in which I've given away my power and like get back to who she was. Mm. And that's what the book is really about. It's about like this universal journey that we all go on to, if we're lucky, to reclaim those parts of ourselves that we've given away, that have been siphoned off by the the labels, um, by the stereotypes, by the boxes that we've been asked to squeeze ourselves into. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So it's So it really honestly wasn't until the end of college after my advertising internship, which I hated, okay, <laughs> cried every, like so often it's embarrassing, that I then did that soul searching of like, what the hell am I here to do? What what do I want? What is the career I'm going to go after? What career makes sense for me? I, I went through that spiral. I just went through it a little bit earlier because I had that experience of knowing what it is to wake up every day and going to a job that like, was not me mm. and 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 experiencing a, a corporate culture that had such a damaging effect on my self-esteem and that made me feel small and that made me feel invisible like I was just like okay I don't want to feel like that every day so let me I and I went and it was and it was in it was depressing and anxiety inducing and the scariest part of my life being a senior in college and trying to figure out what the hell to do. And I feel like people don't talk about that yeah. existential crisis enough because it is, but we need to talk about it because it's so universal. And anyone who wants a fulfilling career at some point needs to do the work to figure out what that even looks like um, for themselves. And so I did that work and it was scary and it was daunting. And I did it at 20. And then, um, you know, I tell this, I tell the story in the book of kind of how I grappled with all those big existential questions and then how I found my answers and then how that kind of put me on the path that now I'm on. I was going to ask you about that advertising internship, which I think was certainly in the context of the workplace that for me was kind of the first and that was one of your first experiences of the workplace. So it makes sense. But that introduced the topic of what it's like to be a black woman Mm -hmm. at work and how that's different and I cannot tell you how much I related to you talking about feeling small and you know reduced and like a shadow of yourself when you're clearly <laughs> you're not a kind of a small or quiet person like you're very confident but these structures really kind of I think strip that away for you and I think it's a very it's a challenge very unique to being I think a woman of color in the workplace and I was wondering whether mm -hmm. you could just kind of talk a bit about that experience and how you managed to navigate your way out of that. Because for me, I worked for two years in that agency where I had similar experience and I, you know, felt invisible and overlooked and all these sorts of things. And I never figured it out. I left. How can other women and women of color kind of figure out mm -hmm. that process? Cycling out of these systems mm. is very common. And I think that's, that's like, really what I think the industries like the advertising industry and the fashion industry and really media at large is really struggling with. It's like, how come we can't retain 
talent mm. of color. Mm. And and there's a huge pipeline problem. There's a huge culture problem. There's there's a so that's a whole we can talk about that. But but in terms of my my experience, which I do write about in the book, going to work at a place that was extremely white and I mean that in a culture like the culture was very white and it was cold and it was um, austere and it was I felt like there was just nothing human I felt like about the interactions and, mm -hmm. and, and it wasn't malicious no one was outright rude or anything like that but it, it was it's subtle it's right it's more nuanced than that when I got that internship at Ogilvy & Mather in New York City. I got there through a multicultural advertising intern program, which was set up to create a pipeline for young people of color from all over the country and the world um, to get into the advertising industry. As it, was, as it was set up as sort of a fix to a systemic diversity and inclusion problem that the industry was trying to grapple with. So it represented a huge opportunity for me. I'd never been to New York City. I didn't know anyone who worked in advertising or even in a slick office anywhere. And so it was super exciting. The whole world opened up to me. And to that point, I had a lot of experience being the only black girl in the room. I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. I was you know, comfortably slotted in the token black friend position in my social circle. So like I was comfortable. I was I had become comfortable with the discomfort of being the only one in the room. Right. That was second nature to me. And I had managed to thrive in those environments. I was the student class president. I was, you know, a straight A student. Like I was a I was an overachiever in those environments, largely because of this like running from my shadow and and feeling like as a black woman, I had to be excellent. I had to be at 200% in order to even sort of be seen as an equal or respected as an equal. So so I kind of thought I had that down, right? And then I get into the advertising world or, or specifically the, the culture that I was exposed to. And it was the first time that I had to contend with the stratifications of class. And that's a whole different beast. And, and then I started to appreciate my upbringing in a predominantly white community was also like we were all kind of blue collar families. Like we all kind of came from the middle class. And so we all culturally, we subscribe, we subscribe to a similar culture. We listened to the same music. We kind of used the same slang. Like there was a warmth there that was completely absent from my experience with the people, these Ivy League people, you know, these East Coast white people, as I called them. <laughs> and in the book, um, sort of a tongue in cheek label for them. And it was in so intimidating. It was incredibly intimidating for me. And I remember my first day sitting down with my internship cohort, which by the way, everyone else was white. I was the only person of color. They didn't look at me. They looked at each other when they were talking, but no one of the, out of the six people sitting around the table, not one person looked at me in the eye. And from that moment forward, I felt like I did not belong there. And it is those small microaggressions that subtly put you in your place. And there is a certain superiority that is just inherited that is, I think, that a lot of people are blind to. When, you know, people with privilege, this, these kinds of privilege are blind to. And I will never forget the last day of my internship. So there was a girl named Lily, who was sort of the self-appointed leader of the internship cohort. And she was very confident and you know, moved like a boss, sounded like a boss. And so we all deferred to her like the boss. And um, I was really intimidated by her. 
And um, I remember the last day of the internship, she looks at me and says, you know, one day when I'm the president of my company, I would totally hire you, Elaine. Oh my God. It's so patronizing. It is incredibly patronizing when we are all interns. Yeah. Okay. We are all 19. And the fact that she intended this to be a compliment, like this was, this was her being complimentary of me. Now she could see that I was actually a value add, surprisingly. And she would, so therefore as a reward, she would hire me one day. And I'm like, so, so Elaine, you know, 2019 Elaine, would have handled that situation in a very different way. But at the time, I didn't have the tools. I didn't have the confidence. I didn't have the privilege. I didn't have the power. So I thought I didn't have the agency or so I thought. So I just absorbed it. Mm. And I just smiled. And in my head, I rolled my eyes thinking, how do you know I'm not going to be the one to hire you one day? But I think that story, that anecdote, that experience, I think captures what the experience really was at large that I was dealing with. I was confronting privilege and entitlement in a way I had never encountered before. And it really stifled me and, and, and silenced me. And it made me question my intelligence. It made me question my worth. It made me question whether I even belonged there. And it really had a dark effect. I mean, I, I came home crying multiple times, calling home multiple times, and I'm not a homesick person. My mom was sending me prayers and, um, you know, it was, it was hard. And so, but I'm so grateful for that opportunity because I think you need to know what you don't want in order to figure out what you do want. And that goes for jobs career, you know, career environment, your, your careers, it goes for, I think that these things are unconscious work environments. And it also applies to relationships, by the way, you know, you kind of need to encounter what doesn't feel good so that you know how to create and cultivate a life that does feel good. And so when I came back to college for that last, what I thought was a year and then turned into be just a semester because I accidentally graduated early, which is so <laughs> like such a me thing, like who does that? But I, I was like, okay, that is not what I want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let me be braver and bolder about really declaring what I do want. And f- first of all, figuring out what I want and then declaring it and then going after it full force because the scariest thing to me, scarier now than failing is living a life that doesn't allow space for me to be all of who I am. That really does tally with my experience as a woman of color in, or as a black woman in the workplace and other women of color I've spoken to. And you talked about kind of deciding what you wanted to do and kind of then deciding to go for it. And something that I think I found quite instructive in your memoir was how deliberate you were about that. And you reached out to people and, you know, Mm -hmm. really kind of charmed or strong armed them into media, whichever way you want to put it. (laughs) Very persuasive. You know, I get a lot of like requests for kind of people wanting my time and some of them are really well crafted, others not so much. And I'm sure you get the same. And I was wondering whether you could kind of speak a little bit to how women who are, you know, maybe just starting out can kind of do that effectively and network effectively Mm. and make those reach outs effectively because there is 
I wouldn't say there's a right way. There is a good way and a not so good way. And yeah. I'm kind of on the receiving end of both. And I was wondering yeah. whether you could talk about that. Yeah. Oh, that's such a, an important question. I am of the school of thought that, and, and this I inherited from my first boss and mentor, Harriet Cole, who I stalked <laughs> to get an opportunity first just to get an informational interview, which then ultimately turned into an, a job opportunity, which then turned into like the you know, big break in my, my magazine career. So I owe so much to her and I learned so much from her. And one of the things she said is don't come up to me and ask me to be your mentor. If you approach me and first of all, make it clear that you've done your homework and you have intelligent questions and ultimately you have illustrated ways in which you can add value to my enterprise, then I can hire you. And by working with me, you will by default be mentored by me. And that is the only thing I have time for is I have time to mentor people who are working with me because true mentorship is an investment requires an investment of time. Mm -hmm. And, and I need to like in the, I don't have time to give away. So, but what I do have time for is, um, is nurturing talent when we are working together. It's, it's, she's like, basically, you know, don't ask me for, to be your mentor, ask me for a job and then earn that job and I and I just like I feel that it's just so I have subsequently inherited a lot of mentees who worked for me or interned for me and and that's how we develop a real relationship that is mutually beneficial and the connection is sincere and it's been it's built organically over time Mm -hmm. so I think we kind of have to reframe mentorship it's such a big word and I think that we really in 2019 or 20 are now looking we should be looking at mentorship through different lenses there's different kinds of quote-unquote mentors that you can have in your in your life and each can be equally impactful and influential so there there's your boss who I think for better or for worse is actually a mentor because you are learning from how they move through the world you're learning from them what power looks like you're learning about leadership by watching them by by coexisting with them and then there's like people who may or may not take their take the time to have an informational with you have coffees with you semi-regularly maybe even once that's a different kind of mentor and then there's this new I think rise of bad term but digital mentorship where it's like you're following someone's trajectory on the internet you're following them on Instagram or on Twitter and you have this relatively new portal into someone else's world you're able to see how they move through the world the decisions that they're making the moves that they're making and you are learning from them you may never meet them you may never need to meet them you can slide into their dms every day they may never respond but it doesn't mean that they aren't positively impacting you and there's space for that there's a lot of space for that now and and then the last category is peer mentorship I think we take for granted that we have a rich network of women to our left and our, to our right who are peers, who are figuring out the the new rules. Because by the way, the old rules don't really apply anymore. So the I think it's an old old school, outdated idea that wisdom flows from the top down. I think wisdom fly, flows from bottom up. I learned so much from my mentees such that sometimes it doesn't even feel right to call them mentees because I'm like, 
I'm actually asking you to put me on <laughs> to a lot of things, you know? And uh, so it's always mutually beneficial, right? But then, but then it's like the, the women who are rewriting these rules in real time are actually sometimes more valuable to you in present day context than someone who's older than you, who comes from a different generation and, and who subscribes to a different set of rules that may not apply anymore. Mm -hmm. So, so I like to like break it up. So it's like, okay, so depending on the type of mentorship you're seeking, you have to tailor your approach accordingly. And I don't know that while I, you know, stalked my, my mentor with, you know, a letter, a hand, you know, a letter that I crafted for a month and I snail mailed it to her and then I emailed it and then I called like every day to follow up to try to get the phone call. Like that is something that worked for me and it is not necessarily like replicable. I don't, I don't recommend that, that you do that. <laughs> it may not work. You know what I mean? And also it was a different time. Yeah. We didn't have Instagram then. You couldn't just slide into the DMs of your role model, you know. Um, so what I would say is you have to be intentional mm -hmm. about what you're looking for. And all you can do is give it your best shot. You can you can you have to do your homework, you have to do your research, and you have to be conscious of things like how long your email is the spelling and the grammatic that, you know, especially if you're looking to be a writer or work in media, like if someone doesn't even know how to craft a sentence, like I can't read it. <laughs> I can't make time to read it. I mean, and even if someone takes the time to write a very long heartfelt email, I might not have time to read it. What I, what I can say is to do your homework, do your research, come prepared, ask intelligent questions and make it clear what your value add can be. Don't come with your hands open, come with your hands full and ready to serve, ready to offer something because the best mentorships are mutually beneficial. And then also don't get your feelings hurt if your career role model doesn't get back to you in the DMs or even on email because that person might just be someone who you're meant to follow from a distance and learn from from a distance. And maybe, you know, that is that lack of connection in real life is redirecting you to someone in your real life who you can learn from and, and maximize maximize that relationship more mm -hmm. than you maybe are. So everything happens for a reason. I think that's the other thing you have to trust. Like I think we, we like get into strive mode and we get our hearts so set on one path or connecting with, with one person in a certain way and it might not work out. Just know that it didn't work out for a reason and what's meant for you will never miss you. I want to change tack a little bit and talk about Teen Vogue or the Teen Vogue years because I know that a lot of people sort of who follow you, you know, that will have been how you kind of came into their view. And sure. obviously you had such a huge impact there and left such a legacy there. You know, under your guidance, Teen Vogue became pretty political and a lot of the, well, I'd say most of the buzz and traction that kind of surrounds it now, I think, kind of happened whilst you were beauty director and then editor and then editor-in-chief there. Um, and yet I've heard you describe yourself as being an accidental mm -hmm. activist. How did that come about then? Well, I think that the term itself has been activism, activist, has been redefined in the last few years. And so I think we used to think of activists as only those who are on the front lines of you know, every protest and like chaining themselves to the White House gates and, you know, burning their bras. And 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 so just a more radical sort of view. And I 
like many people just always thought like, well, I could never live up to the expectations of what it means to be an activist. I would never classify myself as one. But what I realized over time is that when you find yourself in spaces that were not built for you, sometimes just being you is the radical act. Sometimes your authenticity is your activism. One of the young people that really inspired my new view on activism is Amanda Stenberg, and she did a whole talk about that very concept of your authenticity being your activism, and it really resonated with me at a time when I found myself, you know, in a rare leadership opportunity as a woman of color, as a black woman in a in a white organization that was the primary purveyor of sort of this Eurocentric beauty standard. And like the work that was coming out of that building was reinforcing that mm. and um, to damaging effect. And I knew that firsthand as a black girl growing up and only seeing sort of the white girl with the blonde hair blowing in the wind in the Pantene commercial. And that was the aspirational beauty standard that I could never attain naturally, right? And so I knew how how hurtful that was and how damaging it was for my self-esteem. So I was like, wow, I, as the first, you know, black beauty director in Connie Nast history, I have a really rare and important opportunity to change that for the next generation of young girls of color who are coming up. And by the way, for plus size folks, for queer folks, for disabled community like there is an opportunity there's white space to fill and there's opportunity to bring folks in who've never felt reflected or centered and so naturally like being who I naturally am with the ideas that I naturally have as a black woman pulling from my lived experience talking about my hair like casting people who look like me this is sort of these are natural extensions of me mm. this is just me being me. This is my authenticity, quote unquote, which has kind of become a buzz term. And if I lean into that, as scary as that might feel, because it's literally going against everything I've been taught, like the survival mechanisms, the survival tactics that tell you assimilate, conform, camouflage, code switch, like do what you have to do to deflect from your blackness, to not distract anyone with your big hair so that you can be respected mm. in these white spaces so that you can be seen as an authority you know like I had to I had to decide like the the most transformational work I was going to be able to do in my career was going to be on the other side of fear um and I and so even though I felt like awkward about embracing more of my ethnicity and elevating black folks in the magazine um at first I was like, this is what I'm here to do, mm. you know, because by the way, seeing my name in headlines for the first time and next to my race was such a mixed bag of emotions for me in 2012 when we had a black president and people thought we were living in post-racial America and people thought that like race wasn't a thing anymore. You know, we've mm. we've conquered that whole racism thing. And it's like, no, we're still celebrating first, which means we're just at the beginning mm. of creating progress and we have a long way to go. And it made me realize that, you know what, this is honestly, this whole assimilation syndrome that I'm caught up in is futile because no matter how much I straighten my hair or pull it back or code switch, my race will still walk into every room before I do. Mm -hmm. So I now have an opportunity to embrace that. And, um, and, and anyway, so in a way that became a radical 
act at a time when that just was not happening. And while I ne- I wouldn't necessarily call myself an activist, I, s- I certainly, you know, got labeled as one by other people. And, I, and, and, and then over time, my embrace of my ethnicity and my work and making space for marginalized people and their voices, which then led us down this path of, you know, um, you know, expanding our remit to include not just fashion, beauty, and celebrity entertainment, but also politics and social justice, like that trajectory, I think then put me on, on this sort of quote unquote activist track. And it's like, I didn't, that's why I say it's, I'm, I, if anything, I'm an accidental activist. Cause it's not like I, it's also, it's like, not that I came into this organization with organization with my fist up, you know, it was, I, it was like, it took time to, know what my voice sounds like, to then figure out how to use it, to then advocate for my ideas, to then open advocate for other people who don't look like me, who wouldn't have these opportunities without someone like me opening the door. Like, it's a process. Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of wanted to shine a light on that in the book, like the process. We don't talk about that. We just show the pretty picture and the finished result. Mm-hmm. So Because, it, I mean, from reading the book, it clearly wasn't easy. And you talked about various kind of internal challenges you faced with that in terms of within the corporation within the company and maybe some kind of resistance to, I guess, this kind of change in tone of voice or change in focus for Teen Vogue. How did you navigate that? How did you kind of get consensus? Did you manage to get consensus? Well, I think hire by hire, story by story, we were able to change the culture internally first, which is really important. And I think one thing that is i hope people walk away with when they read the book is that it's it's the the stories change when you change the storytellers so just by me being in a leadership role and by me hiring you know a queer beauty editor who's a male um in 2012 or 13 by him getting promoted and both of us getting promoted to hire more folks who had sort of shared values and um, different sort of outsider perspectives that were kind of now infiltrating this very insidery system, we are organically changing the culture of this space. Mm -hmm. And then the conversations that we have internally are changing. Therefore, the stories that are coming out of this space are organically going to be different, right? And I think so the transformation of Teen Vogue that everyone saw and kind of was in awe of, I don't think that, I think that the, the important thing to shine a light on is that that was a natural extension of the storytellers changing, right? Um, it wasn't like we were just trying to, like, what's the next big thing that we can do, you know? Or, or And and also, I will say, in terms of how did I gain consensus, it was um, a collective effort of a, a, a collective group of young outsiders who became insiders who just did what we felt was right. And because we were the underdogs in a larger media company, no one was really paying attention at the time. And I think the expectations for us were quite low. So we did not ask for permission. We just were prepared to ask for forgiveness. And Mm -hmm. we just kind of operated story by story. Um, We started changing, changing the output story by story, hire by hire. And the result was this sort of 
massive transformation and, and, and really sort of a huge response from the audience that just reinforced that this was the kind of content they were hungry for. And by that point, when you're a sort of you have a when you're a proven successful case study, then of course you're gonna get the buy-in, right? Mm-hmm. That people are like, oh, okay, well, I guess this is working. Don't stop. Um, so I think that's one there's a I think the misnomer that it must have been so hard for us to get the powers that be at Kanye Nas to approve these ideas, but they really weren't a part of the conversations until it had already caught on mm-hmm. in some ways. Um, not to say that there wasn't, I'm sure some, some, there were small, there were definitely some smaller conversations, but it, we never heard no. Mm. The reason I asked about getting consensus is because definitely in the kind of latter chapters of your book and talking about working at Condé Nast and, and at Teen Vogue, you, for all the, you know, positive aspects and the amazing things that you were able to achieve, you did, it did sound like a challenging environment at times and you wrote mm-hmm. about systemic issues and double standards that made mm-hmm. your time there pretty stressful emotionally, physically. Mm-hmm. What did you learn from that situation about navigating office politics? And the reason I ask is because, again, I never learned how to master it. Mm-hmm. I <laughs> opened the door and like stepped out and I was right. like, I'm going to do my own thing. And much as doing my own thing is really working for me, when people say, oh, it's so amazing, you're self-employed, I'm like... Did I jump or was I pushed? Mm. You know, and I I still want to talk about how to navigate that system. So what did yeah. that experience teach you? Yeah, you're. I think we need both. We need like defects who like say, nope, this isn't working for me, who spin off and do their own thing and create what will be the future of our economy. And we also need change agents who are working on the inside to disrupt and rebuild healthier systems, mm-hmm. right? And these older legacy companies, or honestly, those th- those companies are going to go away. Maybe not in our lifetime, maybe not even our kids' lifetime, but we are seeing kind of the fall of the great empire, right? We're seeing all of these structures that have reigned for generations. They are starting to crumble and that is because of our generation disrupting them. I, like you, decided, I made I made the decision, I did the calculation and then I made the decision that this wasn't the kind of work environment that I could do my best work in. And I decided I didn't want to anymore. And I actually had the, the you know, I was in a position of privilege and power that I was able to construct a career for myself that is multi-pronged and that where I'm able to thrive and, you know, make more than I made way more than I made when I was even there. And, and that's, that's all awesome. But to your point, like, what about, uh, what about those who are still there? How are they navigating it? And like, I wonder if you think about your life in parallel tracks, like what if you stayed and what could you have done differently? And what could you have? Well, I was going to ask you what, I mean, not to suggest that you wish you'd taken a different path, but because by the way, have... I don't. No, exactly. And, and that and... is very, very obvious. And it's obviously working for you. But I just want to know what would you have with what with I... the knowledge you have now, what would you have done differently? How would you have handled it differently? I honestly don't. I wouldn't have done anything differently, except, you know, if if I were giving my daughter advice, if, if, it, if I look at myself as my daughter mm. and I'm like hovering above and watching her go through all of it, the only thing that I would have the privilege um, of being able to help her with is how to navigate salary negotiations 
differently because I think that a lot of the angst and the turmoil and sort of the toxicity of the environment really was a result of me not feeling like valued properly. Mm. So you don't pay me enough to do this. (laughs) Which starts at that negotiation table. And Mm -hmm. I think that as black women, especially, um, or I think women in general, definitely first generation success stories, quote unquote, we are, we haven't inherited the tools to navigate um, these negotiations with a sense of agency. And we don't have a fallback plan. And we don't have generations of privilege to stand on to say, to walk away if what we're not handed is fair, right? And um, we don't even have the confidence. We haven't inherited the confidence to be able to negotiate um, for ourselves. We, we're good at advocating for other people and our and even ideas, but navigate like money advocating for ourselves in terms in terms of salary is really challenging. Mm. And so I think that I gave away or I felt stripped of power, my power at the negotiation table when I was c- confronted with my first big promotion. And that was the beginning of this sort of painful duality in which I was set up to be a figurehead, to be like a role model. And ultimately, I felt tokenized because I felt like I was put in this position, but I was not... I was not given everything that should have come with that position. And so it sort of, I always felt conflicted from that point on. And I think then there were just so many outgrowths of that. Like, and I think, I think the thing is that women, black women, we have such capacity to do such extraordinary things. And we are already operating in our minds from a deficit. So we are already outperforming our peers, we are already operating at 200% mm-hmm. because we feel like we must in order to be respected as an equal. But we have such capacity to endure and to persist and to, to just get it done by any means necessary. But when the, when the environment is empowering us to do so, but when it's a when we're constantly feeling like we are going against the grain and pushing against this, like this force that just makes us feel like we're not, we're not worthy. It's impossible to do our best work for the long term. Mm -hmm. So I, I would have, I would have just been in her ear. I would have coached her. I would have given her tools for how to navigate that first promotion. Because I think that the way I, felt about the work that I was doing, the way I felt coming into the office every day, the way I felt amongst my, my, you know, my, in, in, in the rooms with my team, I think it would have been different and maybe would have had a different outcome. I don't know. But, um, I certainly learned on my toes. I learned along the way. I mean, I, I picked up tools along the way and, you know, after a year of doing the work for less than what I thought I deserved, I went back very prepared to walk away mm-hmm. if I wasn't able to to 
get the package and the compensation that I thought I deserved. And I was able to negotiate for myself and I got a better package. But the so much damage had already been done, honestly, on my psyche and my ego and my heart and my and my gut that mm. I think the erosion had already taken its toll, mm. frankly. I mean, that's really honest. I haven't really said it like that before, but that's the honest truth. And I and I share it only because it's a universal experience for so many black women, women of color, and women who've been promoted to leadership positions and been told to just be grateful mm-hmm. for the opportunity, even when it didn't come correct. I really relate to what you're saying about the effect it has on your psyche. I remember when I was 25, as I was leaving a job, I was on my notice period already. I'd already handed in my notice and I went to speak to a recruiter about what my options were. And she was like, oh, I assume you're on about X. And I was like, no, 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 I'm on way less. And there was nothing really I could do at that point because I'd already quit. I was already moving on. I didn't want to stay there. They had Wait, wait, just so I'm clear. They had assumed that you were earning more than you were earning? Yeah, because she looked at my CV. She mm-hmm. looked at my experience and she was like, oh, okay, if someone of, you know, I assume you're about something around this mark. This and was, was a recruiter? Yeah. Okay, who has a sense of the market exactly. and the value. And exactly. They, we were talking about what I could expect, you know, going to other jobs. And I was like... That's always the eye-opening moment. You're, you're like... It was devastating. It was devastating. I remember I literally, and I walked back to this office where I was already not loving it there. And I remember texting a friend and I like, I still thinking about it now is almost so triggering, triggering. And I never got over that. And the feeling of knowing that someone, I felt not saying it applies to you, but feeling like I'd been taken for a ride Mm -hmm. and also not knowing this, I think completely changed my attitude about money you know I went from being the girl who doesn't talk about salary or money because right. I was like it's sacred you shouldn't share that to being like okay everyone what, <laughs> yes, <laughs> what are you making table. yeah exactly it completely yeah. changed my Puts attitude about money yeah, yeah tra- totally. transparency allows us all to have like there's more power there's an exchange like when we put our when the only the only one who benefits from all of us keeping our salaries shrouded in secrecy is quote unquote the man Mm -hmm. (laughs) right but when there's transparency then that's how we can push for equality because then we know what the market value is and from there we can assess what our true value is and then we can advocate for it to for ourselves how do you figure out your worth now because i think something that's difficult is if say you're an account manager with four years of experience at an ad agency, there is mm-hmm. a range and there is a, you know, you can sure. kind of figure it out, but there is only one Elaine Welteroth. You have <laughs> a unique career path. Your value, I don't know, you can maybe try and benchmark yourself against other people in your industry doing similar things, but it's, it, I imagine that's quite difficult. So how do you figure that out now? Honestly, it's not that difficult. Okay. Um, I think there are benchmarks as well in, in, different um sort of fields that i the spaces that i occupy um and also what's helpful and this sounds like a really kind of bougie response but having agents who are the ones who have a greater sense of you know the market they can help you assess your value and similar to a recruiter Mm. um so before i left teen vogue there were agents that had approached me and it was a very foreign concept to me. <laughs> Having an agent seemed like, what? Why would I need one of those? Um, but over time, I actually saw the value of, of, of an agent um, and offers would come to me and I 
you know, I'm, I didn't want to negotiate them for myself. So I, it started with me just having the agent, um, transact on inbound and, and I watched how those offers increased, like how they were able to negotiate for, you know, hiring. I think you'll learn like based on the offers that come in. And if you have someone who can help you negotiate, you start to learn what the range is, um, for whatever the service is. And then, you know, as you build, credibility in each space you can see that that you can ask for more you can push for more and also there's so much power in saying no when someone isn't able to meet you where you are Mm. or where you see yourself where you want to be and I can't tell you how many times I've said no and then the offer comes back double Mm. and that's just like that's now now we're operating in like a level of privilege that so many black women never get to never never um reach because we have been told for so many generations to accept what you're given and to do the work with a smile and to not make anyone feel uncomfortable not to be difficult um so we don't even ask for more mm. but there is so much power in in asking for what you feel your worth is and, and and not just feel but the you know you've done your research and you and you know that this is kind of what the ranges that you should be in but it also takes people like betting on you and people and people um, meeting you there and then once people say yes then that sort of becomes your rate right so it's like you kind of got to get you have to get a, a few deals under your belt at these rates to understand that you, that it can happen and then you kind of go from there so I know that's a little bit of a roundabout answer but it's just the, it's it's the only way I know how to answer it you mm-hmm. know I and my my book deal was the first really big deal that I got when I left Teen Vogue. And I was, I I had a couple of friends who had gotten book deals and um, I just asked them. How much they got? How much was your book deal? Mm -hmm. Because it gave me a sense of where I should be aiming. Mm -hmm. And when I heard, I was like, (laughs) what? People are out here making money on books in 2000. 18 mm-hmm. and I was just I was shooketh I didn't even I didn't even know and um, it completely and and the thing is I'm mo- I'm motivated by money I actually am unapologetic about that I do great work I am passionate you can't find someone who will work harder than me and if you pay me and make me feel valued you are getting if you were already getting 200 <laughs> percent you are about to get 350%, you know? And I think that's yeah. the thing. It's just about feeling valued and feeling respected. And like I said, your your capacity just expands that much more when you're paid your worth. Mm. I love when women are open about being motivated by money, which is something I also identify with because I think so often it's seen as taboo or, you know, it's seen as unladylike to, mm-hmm. you know, I've actually had friends tell me that, you know, they asked for a pay rise and they were told it's unladylike oh or it's inelegant. God. Yeah. Like in the 21st century. Um, Where are my pearls? Yeah, exactly. I must clutch them in this moment. That's crazy. I mean, sorry, it's it's not crazy. It's actually the norm and it's the status quo. And yeah, it's yeah. It's reflective of the society that we've all grown up in. Anyway, I think that might be all we have time for. Thank you so much for joining me. Work therapy. Yeah, it's been a brilliant conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And that's it for today and also for this season. Thank you so much for tuning in and for all the lovely feedback you shared over the past six weeks. It really does mean a lot. 
Only the company will be returning in the spring of next year with a whole new bunch of smart creative women. I'd love to find out who you want to hear featured on the show next, so do feel free to tweet me or slide into my DMs and I'll see what I can do to make those conversations happen. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, then I'd really, really appreciate it if you could leave a lovely five-star review on iTunes as they really do help the podcast grow and find new listeners. Otherwise, see you next year. Yeah, yeah.